I'm Carrie Miller, and on my Friday book show, we're back to the fits and back to talking volumes with hometown Newbery Award-winning writer Kate DiCamillo. The conversation was delightful, wide-ranging, and introspective, including DiCamillo's reflection on how the absence of her own father helps her relate to the challenges kids are confronting today. You could feel like these kids, 900 of them, they were so present and they got it. And, um, and they got this thing about like these, these things that seem bad actually give you something. And also, I'm standing up here and talking to you about these bad things that happened and telling you that you can be okay. Talking Volumes and Kate DiCamillo are next right after the news. Welcome, everyone. Nice to have the brave, the mighty, and the masked with us. Do you feel kind of brave? Tonight, we are back in medieval Europe and back in a monastery with the good brothers of the Order of the Chronicles of Sorrowing. And I started thinking about this. Maybe there is something about a worldwide plague that puts writers in the, in the mind of medieval Europe. I don't know. Kate DiCamillo's new book asks what happens when you create a special circle of a demon goat, a brilliant girl meant for great things and a brave but impulsive boy, and then you send them on a quest for truth and goodness. Kate DiCamillo is a two-time Newbery Award-winning author, and she is a hometown girl. Her new book is titled The Beatrice Prophecy, Please welcome her to her first ever appearance at Talking Volumes. It's so exciting to be here. Where have you been all my life? Where this, Where have you been all my this life? This is weird. I've been here. You've been this here. This is weird that you this haven't done. This is the first done... time we've ever we've ever met. I mean, you might change your mind by the time this is over. With you might think <laughs> that never needs to happen She's again. She's been downstairs yeah. trying to get the questions out of me relentlessly. She accused like. me. She accused me because she went to the bathroom of looking through her purse, which I did not do. I, I said, did you notice I took my script and my questions with me when I left the room? She's like, how dare you? you I, think just, I, would- I, I just know that you're formidable. I, I listen to the radio, so I, I'm, I'm ready. I get the feeling from uh, reading back through your many books, and then reading this book, that you have an interest in the chemistry of unexpected friends. Like, what happens when you throw some people together and they develop a kind of commonality and chemistry? And there's a a thread that uh, goes back through some of your other work with this. Sure, yeah. Okay, so... I'm curious about what interests you about what, that. What interests me about that? Well, you know, I, I've said this a lot, and you probably in doing your research have come across me saying this because ah. I know you've done your research um, because I looked at your notes. Um, <laughs> I um, knew it. That I, I, I don't know what I'm Doing, I do. I write behind my own back. So I'm not even looking at... Some, I don't think, oh, this interests me this theme okay i there's um uh when uh but my very first book was published um because of winn dixie 
And I... I... Name dropper. (laughs) (laughs) And I... I, I was working at a bookstore at the time, and you know, let's, I mean, this is a long time ago, and um, you could do school visits where they paid you to come into the school and talk about the book wow. that you had written. Really? Yes. Wow. It was just like amazing to me. So I got signed up to do the very first one of those, and I was just like thrilled because I was going to make in one school visit what I made in a week at the bookstore. <laughs> and I was like, oh boy. And so I go into a fifth grade classroom, and I stand up in front of the class with the teacher, and she says to these kids, here's the person who wrote the book, and now what we're going to do is talk about the themes in the book. And... Um, I felt a bead of sweat move down um, this. Uh, it's like, I'm not going to get this $250 um, because I don't know. It was know. about the money. I don't know what the themes are in the book. I have zero idea. And, and so mercifully, this wonderful teacher and these fifth graders, they work together to, to put the themes up on, on the board. And I'm like, oh, that seems right. Is this that's all us. really true? It is true. And then when I got out to my car, I wrote down the themes <laughs> so that I, like, the next school visit, I'm like, let's talk about the themes that are in this, this book. But, I mean, but it, all of which is to say, yes, I can see after the fact that I am interested in unexpected alliances right. and people who that you, you would uh, that has been there from the very beginning yes um, and when those fifth graders told me the themes of because of Winn-Dixie mm-hmm. friendship was the first thing that came up there right and and it's friendship between Opal and uh, somebody who's been in jail uh, for you know so it's just those are it, it happens again and again and again there's a monk and a girl and a goat a and demon goat a demon goat an unexpected alliance. An unexpected alliance. We'll get alliance. to that in a minute. Okay. But were you somebody who, as a kid, made friends easily? I, I've always thought that was my uh, one true skill, was really? to be able to make friends. Yeah. So, you know, when I think of a skill, I think of it as something that one develops. Okay. Um, was it a... <laughs> uh... Was it a... I thought you were going to say superpower oh, or something. Oh, it, it, what, you mean, was I a calculating child yes. who went around trying That's to... Working people over. No, I just... I feel like... Um, <laughs> working people over. <laughs> I, I feel like I just... It, you know, I came from... This is, you know... I, I came from a single parent home. And, um, and I found my way in the world because of all the people who opened their doors to me. Um, and I, I grew up in a small town in central Florida, and uh, I was back there in 2016 for Ramey Nightingale at the library uh, of, in the town where I grew up. And it, this whole thing was delivered to me as everybody came through the line, all these people that I'd known when I was a kid, that the town raised me. Wow. Um, and, and so, and that... I'm just so aware of how people opened their hearts and their doors to me and fed me. I'm really fond of being fed. Um, so, yeah. How much did the 
how how much did your friends and the people in your community know about your father having left the fact that you know you were it was your mother and you and your brother right right i mean was that something that you felt like you had to cover up in some ways or you were compensating for that or um i you know it was a different time um and and it was a small town and uh there was nobody else who uh came from a single parent uh home and among my friends really? and also nobody who was divorced so yeah i felt it keenly but um i also i remember i mean it, it, you couldn't hide it he wasn't there right um, and uh, I remember uh, for a while because it was there was always this illusion that he was going to come back. It was an illusion that he fed us, and that um, and that my mother believed in for a while. And I remember saying to Ida Bell Collins, who was the neighbor at the top of the street, who knew everything that was going on. And she said, oh, "When is your father coming?" And I said, "Soon." And I. I remember thinking, not true at all. I know what's going on, and he's not coming back. Which is when I, you know, thought if I had long blonde hair, I bet you I could get him to come back. And so then I entered into a battle with my mother to grow my hair long. She's like, "You look stupid with your hair long. Um, your your face is too small." And and then it was always just her trying to like, you know, we weren't good at styling hair in my family, so that was a lot of yeah. <laughs> One of those superpowers you did, yeah, that, not, yeah, yeah, did not get. Yeah. It's so interesting, though, to hear you say you knew even as you were. Kids always know. Fibbing. Yeah, kids know that it was. It, a fib. It's, it, it, it let me it let me lead you into this this very thing that um, I, I get it, it, I get this question a lot. Um, why is why do so many bad things happen in your books? Um, oh, people ask you that? Yeah, because, you know, they're books for kids. And it's just, kids are the ones that, you know, kids when they um, pretend like their father is coming back, they're doing it for the adults. Mm-hmm. Kids know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it has come up when you've been talking to kids, hasn't it? Sure, yeah. Kids, and, and you know, I. It's part of when I, you know, I had a PowerPoint um, because after a while they told me I had to have a PowerPoint, so I had one, and um, and I thought, I'm again, it's that thing where I'm not going to stand up there and tell them um, that this thing didn't happen. Right. I'm just going to and and kids. Uh, sometimes it was electrifying with them. They would get it. They would put it together themselves. Because I would, I would talk about how sick I, I was. Sick a lot as a kid. Are you going to make notes about that? Uh huh. Um, and and I would sick t- I- as a child. <laughs> Next session. <laughs> I would, I would, I would tell them about all the different diseases I ha- had, none of which they even know anymore. It's like I had chickenpox and dead silence, and and I had measles three times. They don't even know what measles are anymore. So, but and they, you could feel them putting it together. Of like, wait a minute, this is where the stories come from, um, yeah. because and, and they and they would say that to me afterwards and they would want to talk to you about their missing parents afterwards it's like that's one of the things that i really miss is that chance to do a one-on-one with a kid that needs to be seen that way and for me to tell them you'll be fine 
Um, I, I read an exchange that you had with Matt De La Pena in Time Magazine, who I've interviewed a few times. Isn't he a delight? He is something. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's wonderful. And he asked you a question about how honest a writer can be to kids about the hard things of life. And you told this incredibly poignant story of being in South Dakota. Would you talk about that? Um, it was in South Dakota. It was 900 kids in an auditorium. And it doesn't happen all the time, that, but you could feel like these kids, 900 of them, they were so present and they got it. And, um, and they got this thing about like these, these things that seem bad actually give you something and also I'm standing up here and talking to you about these bad things that happened and telling you that you can be okay uh it was just a a fabulous group of kids and I stood um and uh at the end of the show and like just talked to them as they exited they had to get on school buses and one little boy grabbed my hand I can't do it (laughs) you can um and said I'm here and uh, my my father is in uh, California, and I didn't. I don't know if I'm ever going to see him ag- again. But you said that you're okay, so I know I'm going to be okay. And that that that's what a book can do, though. That's let let me get back on so track because you're very pleased with yourself <laughs> because, and I don't like that, Carrie. <laughs> Who's got the, she did it to me, she oh did it gosh. to me, she's got the upper hand. You're the first person who's ever nailed me on that. <laughs> no, but, don't get back on track too fast. But, but you know, it, it's funny because um, th- this is another moment I think that I can talk about without crying. Um, but I, I'm uh, friends with... Uh, somebody who sat on the stage, Ann Patchett. Mm-hmm. And um, I was at her bookstore not that long ago, and she wanted me to talk to one of her booksellers who had read Despero when he was a kid. And uh, he was the most lovely human being. And he told me that that book saved his life. And then he went on to say, and I'm standing here getting to say this to you now, but I can guarantee you that there are kids all over the world who have read that book and felt seen, and it saved their lives. And so it doesn't matter whether or not we get to say it. It's happening. And that is the miracle of books. Okay, what did you mean when you said, Uh (laughs) I put the best of me, the books are the best of me? they are not only the best of me, but they're better than I am. Um, the The story is... I've heard you do lots of interviews. I know you're not going to uh, agree <laughs> with this line of thinking, but I can only tell you that it's my experience. The story is smarter than I am. And so my job always is... Because I know that you don't believe that I sit down... And I don't know what's going to happen. No, I, it isn't that I don't believe that. I'm interested in that. Well, it's... It, 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 and everybody works differently. Yeah. Um, but for me, I, I don't know. And so when I sit down to write um, The Beatrice Prophecy, um, I have no idea 
it's terrifying and it's exhilarating and I don't know where I'm going and that's part of why I also, and, and I can see things out of the corner of my eye that we would call themes after the fact. <laughs> um, and I think don't look too closely at that. Uh, I don't, really? Don't, yeah, just yeah. keep going and, and, and it, so it's kind of like a subconscious thing. Mm-hmm. So have you learned over your writing career to be okay with the terror of not knowing where you're why going. Why is terror in quotes? I, that, 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 why are you minimizing Ter- my terror? Terror. <laughs> Terrifying. Um, have I learned to be okay with that? Yeah, I've learned that that's, um, that's the way that I work. I've, I, and, and I've also learned to trust that part of me um, that uh, that is the best part of me, the part that knows what's going to happen. So it's the story, but it's also there's something in me that can go down into that darkness. I always think of it as like a long hallway, and there's just a little line of light at the end of it. And that's wow. what. And then as I get closer and closer, it's just like, oh boy, I'm going to be able to open up this door. And and um, that door is filled with light, and that's the the end of the book. And I think, man, I'm never going to do that again. Uh, <laughs> that's that's the last novel that I'll write. Yeah. Where are those Newberry medals hanging? Oh, uh, they're not hanging. I uh, it's I've got a old. Uh, I think of it as a desk that would have been an uh, Edward Hopper painting. Um, and it, it's there are three drawers on the left, and the middle drawer in the very back. And sometimes on really dark days, I will open up that middle drawer, and I'll look at the very back, and then I'll slam it shut. Okay, again. that's yeah. that's yeah. yeah, that's what I wondered yeah. because there is, they rattle when I do that. Yeah, yeah. There's complete validation that you found your way, and you will only on very dark days. Yeah, very infrequently do I do that because that's not my business. What does that mean? I mean, my business is to do the work that I'm supposed to be doing now. And it's like, you know, (laughs) I've told the story a couple times recently. Um, My best friend that I grew up with, I was, this is like, when when Dixie came out, I think, and I was saying, oh, I can't believe all this because it was just like I didn't expect that many books to sell. And it was just overwhelming and I, I don't deserve it. And she said, you're right. You don't deserve it. And then she said, I mean, she said this in a loving way. Right. It, it's not about you, pumpkin. And and that's kind of like the Newberries are to look at that is like to, it's to make it about me. And it should be about the story. Does that make sense? I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> it makes sense to they y'all. They were all like, yeah. 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 Okay. yeah. I thought your friend was going to say something like, you're right. You don't deserve it, but own it, girl. And and <laughs> no, but it was, think of all the good you can do. And or, sometimes I'll just mutter to myself, "It's not about you, pumpkin." You know. And then what do you I, say? And like coming out on a stage, that's a good thing to to mutter to yourself. Yeah. But it is about you here on the stage. Well, I'm trying to make it not be, but you keep on <laughs> shoving me around. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Would you feel better if we read an excerpt? From the story, because it's about the story. Okay. Carrie, who's in charge here, has made the selections. And so um, the book has only been out a few days, and so y'all won't know. You know that it's about a goat. 
um, who a um, demon goat, a demon goat who uh, is in a monastery uh, with the Chronicles of Sorrowing, the brothers there. And this goat terrorizes all the monks. And uh, there's one monk named uh, Brother Edik who uh, is an illuminator and uh, also happens to be in charge of feeding the demon goat. And he comes out one morning and uh, sees uh, that what at first he thinks it's uh, a two-headed goat and, and he thinks, oh, that's the end of the world. You know, they... They can only, like, with one head, she's already terrifying. So, uh, and then he realizes that. that there's a child in with the goat. So, chapter three a child next to the goat, a child curled up and holding on to the demon Answelica. Brother Edict's heart thumped with dread. The goat's terrible teeth flashed through his mind. He knew these teeth more intimately than he would wish. On a summer day the year before, Brother Edick had spent what seemed an eternity being chased by Answelica through a flower-studded meadow. What the goat was doing in this meadow, miles from the monastery, close to the castle of the king, was a mystery that Brother Edick had never solved. Brother Edick should not have been there himself. It was only that a traveler had told him of the flowers in the field, of their glory and profusion, and Brother Edick thought that he must see this beauty for himself. In the meadow, the goat had come up behind him silently, stealthily. She breathed her terrible breath upon his backside. Then she gave him a gentle, almost playful butt with her head. Brother Edick began to run. He ran, and the goat followed him. The two of them ran together through the field of flowers, and when at last and inevitably Brother Edict tripped and fell, and Swalika came up to him and stood with one cloven hoof on his chest, looked deep into his eyes, and opened and closed her mouth. She drooled on him. She gave him a good amount of time, another eternity, to consider her teeth in every particular and to consider, too, the atrocities of which he knew them to be capable. Just when Brother Edict thought that he could bear it no more, the goat pressed her hoof down upon him very, very hard, then lifted it and walked away from him. He bore the mark of that afternoon still, the sullen, partial outline of a goat's hoof on his chest. The mark would stay there for the rest of his life, a red arrow pointing to his heart, as if anyone would need help locating Brother Edict's heart. Here, he said now, he took a step closer to the goat. We must be very careful. The goat ignored him. The small form nestled up against the goat did not stir. Brother Edict saw that the child's feet were bare and covered in blood. He shivered. Should he go and get help? You coward, he heard his father say. You broken-eyed coward. And it was true. He was a coward. But still, he could not walk away and leave this child alone with Answelica. He would have to confront the goat. You goat-fearing fool, he heard his father say. Brother Edict sighed. He wished his father's voice would leave him alone. He wished it could be silenced once and for all. Brother Edict gathered his robe and made to climb over the gate and into the goat's domain. And Swalika stood. She emitted a high-pitched noise. The child sat up, and Brother Edict saw long hair, astonished eyes, a face shaped like a heart. A girl child. She was crying. 
It was not outraged crying or sorrowful crying. It was the crying of someone who was tired beyond all reckoning. The crying of someone who was trying very hard not to cry. Tears rolled down her face as she looked into his eyes, both of them, his steady eye and his wild and wandering eye, and did not look away. Brother Edict looked back at her. He felt his heart shift inside of him. He felt it open. Oh, said Brother Edict. And Swalika let out another high-pitched noise. Shh, said Brother Edict to the goat and the girl. Shh, all will be well. All will be well. And yet, even as Brother Edict spoke those words, other words, more ominous words, were being spoken not far away. In the drafty throne room of the king's castle, a soldier bowed before the king and said, Sire, the woman is secured in the dungeon as you commanded, but I must tell you, the child is missing. I have searched all of Castle Abelard and its environs. I could not find her. What do you mean you could not find her, said the king. I mean, sire, that she is not there. Her body was not there. The girl is gone. Were you listening to that? <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> I'm Carrie Miller. More of my Talking Volumes conversation with Kate DiCamillo in a minute. You made such an interesting observation um, downstairs before we came out. You looked at the totality of the season, and you noticed that all of the authors are out with books about the past. The past, yeah. Including you. Mm-hmm. What, what, what occurs to you about why, other than the obvious, we're in a pandemic and these are hard times? But... Yeah, and I wrote this way before the pandemic. It's just interesting to me. Yeah, um, I, and I don't, I mean, I wondered if y'all were aware when you... no. It's really no. interesting. So, it, because it's like Lauren's book is is eleventh. Yes. Yeah, and uh, Amor's is uh, the nineteen fifties, right? Yeah, and William Kent Kruger's is the nineteen fifties yes. as well, right? Yeah, and so and I'm somewhere. I mean, I this is this book has been called medieval, um, and I'm not certain where oh. it, it really. Is. Yeah, How I so? mean, and well. There are a couple things, and I don't um, want to give spoilers away, but there are a couple things here and there that make you think, I wonder where we are, or I wonder where that came from. Um, there's a moment when, uh, so Beatrice is uh, a girl who can, the, the girl with the goat, uh, who can read and write, and it is uh, in this time and place, wherever it is and whenever it is, it's against the law for females to do mm-hmm. that. But she's been tutored. Um, uh, her father wanted her to be able to read and write. Um, and the tutor has a book that, he, that the pages are very uniform. Mm-hmm. It, it, there's just, it's like, it looks like it might be a book from now. A contemporary yeah, book? Yeah, right. And there's also a telescope in there. Um, That's and, right. Yeah. So there are these little things that make me, you know, is and there's a moment at the end of the book where it says, you know, all of this happened long ago, or maybe it has yet to happen. Yeah. But the monk is an illuminator. I mean, yeah. Yeah. You've made that purposefully ambiguous or uh it's purposely ambi- it's unknown to me as well it could be that things have ended and begun again 
Hmm. So you wrote this before the pandemic. I did. But you also, um, I think, started the book, was it in 2009? I started the book in 2009, and I see your reporter eyes looking at me. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, And I started it, um, my mother passed away in 2009, and I started the book uh, a few months after she died. And um, I got uh, to the second draft, about 40 pages of the second draft. And then I put it aside. And um, I don't know why I put it aside, but I I was then cleaning uh, my office closet, and this is also um, uh, pre-pandemic, in 2017. And it was one of those terrible, terrible closets that was filled with paper. You know how you have to go through each thing of paper? And at the very bottom uh, of the the last pile was uh, the beginning of this book, 40 pages of it. And I sat and... um, read it like I had had nothing to do with it at all. Wow. And so I could see that it kind of had legs, goat mm-hmm. legs, you know. <laughs> um, and, um, and, and, and it's funny because I had, to say that I had forgotten about it is really kind of uh, an understatement. There's a scene in here where Beatrice remembers a, the tutor holding uh, a seahorse out yeah. to her. And, and, the, and it kind of tumbles through her dreams. Um, and I, that would happen to me in the intervening years. I would think, where did I read about that seahorse falling? And I, and I, and I, I wrote about it. I just made it up, I don't, but I didn't remember it. Which is so interesting to me because a seahorse, um, your hippo campus, mm-hmm. which is Latin for seahorse. The yeah. hippocampus is where you remember things. Yeah, so oh. kind of creepy, huh? Do you want to write that down? So, yeah. <laughs> creepy. <laughs> so, has that ever happened before where you've, as I'm thinking what you said about the passageway feels dark in the beginning and the middle. I mean, do you think this was an experience of, I just can't see that light at the end of this? Or was it something just much more I think it prosaic? was, you know, it, 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 I don't, I think it had to do with my mom passing away because I, I put that in there right about the time that I turned to a, a book about um, a squirrel getting sucked up into a vacuum cleaner and, and turning into a superhero who writes poetry. Um, as I always say to the kids, a true story. Um, and and I, I, I think that I wasn't ready. I, I, I was aware as I was working on the squirrel book that it would make my mother laugh. It mm-hmm. was a way of turning towards joy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I wasn't ready to deal with the... Um, I'll, so much about this. This book is dedicated to my mother, right? Um, and uh, and only after the fact do I see probably why I put it away, and also what a lot of what it's about for me, which is um, my mother. Uh, I struggled to learn to read. Um, m- because I didn't understand phonics. I'm sorry for anybody who believes in phonics. It it didn't work for me, and I'm not dissing phonics, so let's not get into it, okay? I'm just saying... (laughs) I sense you've gotten into it before. That's that's not the way my brain worked for whatever reason. And my mother was uh, uh, savvy enough to say, 
That's basically, that's not the way your brain works. Great. Okay. We'll just figure out a way around it. Right. And which was a super message because she told me explicitly, you're smart. And then she said, we'll figure a way around this. And, and she knew I was good at memorizing things. So she just made me flashcards with words on them. And I just memorized the words and that's how I learned how to read. Wow. And, and that's I've had, pretty extraordinary. Well, it's extraordinary on my mother's part. Yeah. yeah. I wish that I had been fully aware of it. I've never forgotten it, but I wish that I'd been fully aware of it when she was alive so I could thank her. I always knew that she took care of me as a reader. She got me books. She read to me. She knew what kind of books I would like. But I wish I could thank her for that because it was a multi-pronged thing that she gave me. And I was just one of those kids that knew what was in books was something that I needed. Uh-huh. I am, when people ask me who I am, the first word that comes to my mind is reader. Oh, that's man, who, that, that is, okay, we got to applaud that. Yeah, that is yeah. so fantastic. But that's how I understand the world. And, right. and, and I just needed it so desperately, and I, and, uh, and I knew I needed it. And so in this book, the, this whole world that doesn't want Beatrice to read, which is a world controlled by men. And then there's one um, person in particular, the counselor to the king, mm-hmm. who uh, really does not, is enraged by Beatrice's mind. He doesn't want her to be as smart and as headstrong as she is. He sees the power she'll yeah. possess, right? Right. And... My mother made sure that I had that power. She saw who I was, and she saw what I needed, and she helped me get there. Um, And so this book is for her, but for everybody who does that, for somebody else, whether it's through words and stories or just somebody who sees you for who you are and what you need, you know. This is something... um Lauren Groff and I ended up talking about when she was here a couple weeks ago because she reads an unbelievable 300 books a year. It is completely her way of figuring out the world and what she thinks about. And I don't just mean the contemporary world, and you don't either. No, my, my internal yes, world. But, exactly. But also there's that thing, and you know this, Carrie, because this is something that you've talked about, and all the, the science came out from right. behind it. It, it. It's not only that it teaches me about myself, it, that, that imagination lets me then think of what is somebody else's life like, right. and, that, and it builds empathy. And, um, and so it is how you understand yourself, how you understand the world, how you imagine and feel for the people of the world and the goats of the world and the squirrels of the world, right? Um, and it, that's the great gift of, of reading. And, and I am so aware, um, because I always, what I, 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 I work, um, in the morning and then I deal with the, you know, the office work of, you know, answering emails and stuff. And then around two o'clock, I let myself sit down and read. And I think, well, this is part of my job. This is the treat. Yeah. And I can always, Feel it's like I enter my body. That is when I am utterly myself. Is when I'm I'm reading. I feel centered. You know, your mother must have been extremely proud that you not only were the kind of curious, brave reader you were, but then you 
took that and walked into this world of, worked your way into this world of, of writing, did she, I don't know, understand how you chose the kind of writing that you do? What, what were your conversations like with her about the work you do? <laughs> well, the... <laughs> I can't, the fir, very first time I did the uh, the fits, um, I think my mom was here by then. I'd moved her from she when she was in the last five years of her life. She lived here, um, and uh, friends brought her to the fits. And then um, afterwards, they were driving her back and said, uh, "What'd you think of that?" And she <laughs> said. I've been to lots of shows before. It's just like I'm used to seeing people. She was always worried about me getting a big head. That was <laughs> so she wasn't like really, I, yeah, really, yeah, yeah. So she, it was this, it was, it was both things. It was just like because I remember, um, you know, when I started talking about wanting to be a writer, and um, she never said don't do that, um, and. Uh, that alone was a gift because a lot of people, uh, parents, are like, it, it, it's terror in their hearts when somebody says, I'm going to go and be a writer. It's like, oh, don't you want to be a, a lawyer instead, <laughs> you know, so I don't have to worry about how you're going to pay the bills or that you might be living here for the rest of your life, you know? <laughs> All right. Um, and, but she, and she got me... Um, she got me one Christmas, the, the writer's market, which is where, you know, that came out every year about where to send. So she, she did both things, you know. She was a conundrum in many, many ways, yeah. Huh. So it doesn't sound like there were many conversations that about... That is exactly right. There were <laughs> Here's you know? why I, you know, again, pick up the themes, you know, create these characters. Here's another story I remember. All right. Like when the last Harry Potter came out and I was picking my mother up for lunch and I, I and, and uh, she's standing out in front of her apartment building holding the clipping about um, how people all over the world <laughs> are stopping everything they're doing to read this book. <laughs> and she's holding that and she gets in the car and she's like, I don't know if you know this is going on or not. And I wonder, I wonder if you think that you're that big a deal now. Yeah. So there we All right. She kept you in your place, yeah. kind of. And, and not at the same time. Right. Yeah, both things. Right. And, which was a way of letting me... You know, we had in the house that I grew up in, uh, it had a long, uh, uh, a long hallway. And... Uh, and it was uncarpeted. And I would walk down that hallway. I, I tend to slam my heels when I walk. And my mother would say to my brother, here comes somebody who's intent on getting their own way. Oh. Yeah. I lo- <laughs> and did you say, thank you? Yeah. <laughs> yes. And so, I mean, she recognized. And, and you know what? If you're going <laughs> to. Part of, of being a. That, that served me well. Um, because. You know, I, that's another thing that when I would go out and talk to the kids as part of the PowerPoint, I would ask them to guess how many rejection letters I got. And um, they would start at five, and then somebody else would shout ten, and then some brave kid would go, ha, 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 fifty. And then I would say, I would put the number up, and it was 473 rejection letters is how many rejection letters I got. And they were dumbfounded by it. And that kid who was walking down the hallway slamming her heels, she came in and, and, and 
to good use. Um, because I just was, you know, I can't make myself talented, but I could make myself relentless, you know? Are you still somebody who is intent on getting her own way? I don't know. What do you think? (laughs) (laughs) What do you think? (laughs) I I think that, um, yes, I am. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) Yeah, I, you know, yes, yeah. Why are you saying that hesitantly? Isn't that a good thing? Well, I mean, I, I, I hope that I'm not... Uh, I, I guess I'm very... It took me a long time to understand that I'm bossy and strong-willed. Yeah. Yeah. It took me a long time to, to come to terms with that. Which makes you wonderful. Oh, well, thank you, Carrie Miller. <laughs> I uh, think. <laughs> All right. Oh, boy. The therapy session continues. So, Yeah. <laughs> How about another excerpt? I'll okay. give you an out. Okay. I, I, I'm curious about um, why you chose what you chose. Do you want to talk about that? <laughs> Let me open. Is, is that like, I don't know why we are reading this. Yeah, so I'm now, um, I'm going to okay. read chapter 31. Um, and, I, you know, you can address that question after I'm done reading. If you, but it will give you time to, to marshal an answer. So, um, so what happens is Beatrice is discovered um, and, uh, and taken into the monastery. The monks take her in, and then they realize that she can read and write. And they're like, oh, no, we've got to get rid of her because she's she's dangerous. Somebody would be looking for a kid like this. So she is basically sent from the monastery along with the goat, which as far as the monks are concerned, kills two birds with one stone because they're terrified of the goat and the goat will not be separated from the girl. So then they can get rid of both of them. And in, and in the course of her leaving, um, she becomes friends with a boy named Jack Dory who is an orphan boy who lives in the village. And she and Jack Dory then find their way into the dark woods and they encounter somebody who um, has a really good sense of humor. His name is Canuck. That's what I liked about it. Yeah. Is that what you liked about it? Yeah. Okay. So this is when they find out who Canuck is. He lives in a tree, inside a tree, and he, he takes them into the tree. Canuck cleared his throat. He said, perhaps now is the time for me to speak of who I am. He looked at Jack Dory and then at Beatrice and then at the goat. He said, once I was king. Beatrice wiped the tears from her face. She looked up at Canuck. You were king, she said. This was long ago. I was king and then I was not. I walked away. How does a king walk away, asked Jack Dory. I said to the counselor and to the court, I will return momentarily. And I walked from the throne room. The crown was upon my head. I walked through the great hall and the servants bowed deeply. I walked out of the castle and to the drawbridge and the guard there saluted me. I walked across the drawbridge and heard my feet sounding against the wood of it and I liked the sound of my walking so much and I thought, I will keep walking. And you did, said Beatrice. I did, said Canuck. I kept walking. I walked into the forest, and the ground beneath my feet felt wondrous, better even than the wood of the drawbridge. I thought, 
I will keep walking. I walked unaccompanied. I walked without being accosted. I walked without anyone needing anything of me. It was glorious. The birds sang above me. The deer moved past me. I smelled bear and moss and wild honey. And I came to a body of water, a lake I had never seen. And I stood before it and thought of the last words spoken to me. They were from the counselor. His words were, We shall await your return, sire. I stood for a long time at the lake and considered those words. And then I took the crown from my head and threw it in the water and watched it disappear. I felt then as light as air. I had the thought that without the crown upon my head, I would not be able to keep my feet on the ground. The king who could not keep his feet upon the ground said, Beatrice, it sounds like a story someone would tell. Yes, yes, said Kanik, it sounds like a story, but it is the truth. I sat down on the ground and laughed and laughed, and oh, it felt wondrous to laugh. I could not remember the last time I had laughed. I took off my shoes and threw them in the lake along with the crown. And then I put my feet in the water and moved them about and laughed some more. And I thought, I will never return. I will laugh as often as possible. I will grow my beard. That will be my purpose on this earth, to laugh and to grow my beard and to never, ever return to being a king. Did they not come looking for you? asked Jack Dory. Come looking for me, said Kanak. He laughed. My child, please understand, no one comes looking for a king. For as soon as a king disappears, those who would replace him start to scheme and calculate about how to take the crown for themselves. Who knows how many kings there have been since I sat upon the throne? Who knows how many schemers and liars have worn a crown? No, no one searches for a missing king. There was a long silence, and then Kanak cleared his throat and said, That sword, he pointed at the sword leaning against Jack Dory's leg, that sword bears the mark of the king I once was and am no more. I suppose it has been handed down from a soldier father to a soldier son. We've been listening to my Talking Volumes conversation with Kate DiCamillo about her book, The Beatrice Prophecy. Time can be so careless, it can let you down real slow. But tonight we'll sit out in the garden, singing with the crows. And your support helps make Talking Volumes and all of my book conversations on NPR News possible. I'd love to have you step in here on $5 Friday and say, yes, reading matters to me. I'm a book lover. I'm going to step up with some support. Okay, how's this work on a $5 Friday? Here's the deal. Become a sustainer at $5 a month or more. And the NPR Board of Trustees will donate an additional $50 to your generous contribution. So $5 a month from you gets you in the door as a sustaining member of Minnesota Public Radio. And then the NPR Board of Trustees steps in to say, well, we'll toss in another $50 to your contribution. It is a good deal all the way around. You're becoming a sustainer today, and you are powering NPR News every day. 
Here's how to do it, nprnews.org, 800-227-2811. And for all of the book-loving readers out there, I just want to point out the Carrie Miller Book Circle. It's a leadership level of support. And if you could see your way clear to that, we are going to resume someday our book get-togethers, our parties, our soirees. I'll send you a book every other month. And you'll know as you listen to these conversations on the stage of the Fitzgerald Theater or you listen to my book show on Fridays that you are helping to make that possible. Okay, here's the details on how to become a member, nprnews.org. 800-227-2811. And thank you.